0: Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. And Tom, I think this is turning out to be our most eclectic season yet.
1: Absolutely. We're having so much fun already and we're still early in the season. In case you're wondering, in case you're new to the show, Famous Lost Words is where we find classic interviews in the archives and play the best parts for you. And that's Christopher Ward, noted songwriter, original Much Music VJ. I'm Tom Jokic. I'm the creator of the show and also the archivist, the person who digs up a lot of the interviews that we have, well, all the interviews that we have in the archives, and then we play them for you, and it's so much fun. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a question, Christopher. Okay. You and I have done or been part of a lot of interviews. You've done a lot of interviews. I've been in the room with a lot of them. Who did you interview and ended up really liking, even though you weren't a fan of their music?
0: Blackie Lawless from Wasp.
1: (laughs) 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 He was... Very
0: entertaining, uh, very genuine, sort of open-hearted fellow, and a similar experience with Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. Yeah, he's friendly, isn't he? Not a fan, but he was great. And uh, we talked about a whole variety of things, um, some serious, and he was uh, very forthcoming, and yeah, he was good to talk to. Yeah. You know who else I liked was Terry Nunn from Berlin. Oh. And I'm so-so on their music, but she was just charming. And can I throw one more in? Yeah. Phil Collins. Yeah. Because, I mean, he, Genesis are great, Phil yeah. is great, but it's not my, it's not what I play when I go home, just to be fair. But sitting down and chatting with him, he was just, um, i trying to think what the word is. He was easygoing, as you would expect that he would be, but very honest. He, you, you get the feeling a lot of time with artists that they kind of cook up responses and use them throughout the interview circuit, however many interviews they're doing. But in this case, I really had the feeling that he would stop and think about each thing that I was asking him and then give me an interesting answer. He was great.
1: Yeah, he's very he was very friendly, although he was a little bit withdrawn when we met him. But when he was on the air, he was terrific. I think for me, believe it or not, uh, the guy that surprised me the most and I said, oh, I really do not like this man's music, but he was great. It was Michael Bolton. Oh. And we played a lot of Michael Bolton songs, unfortunately. <laughs> And he comes in, and by then, he's kind of full-on Michael Bolton. Like Some people made fun of who he was and his music, and he was great. He was self-effacing. He was a lot of fun. I had him do a contest— we had a guy on the show named Rick, and we did a thing called Rick's Rapid Fire. Well, we changed it to Mike's Rapid Fire, and we did it, and he asked the questions. Ah. And he was fantastic, and I, I wrote the questions so some of them referred to himself. Right. He was really fun, and he had a great deal of fun with us. And so by the time we left, we just got, you know what? I hate to say it, but he's a great guy. Gotta love him, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. You know what? That's always a good story. Yes, here. for yeah. sure. <laughs> Coming up this week, we have some great clips with Aerosmith. Many of the clips are from 1978 when the band had just finished filming the ill-fated Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band movie. And it's interesting to hear them trying to drum up enthusiasm to promote the film. They also talk about their music and their lifestyles. Now, most of the clips are with Steve Tyler, but we also have a clip with Joe Perry and Bradley Whitford. Plus, with the recent passing of Don Everly, we have two short clips with him talking about two of the Everly Brothers' biggest hits.
1: And we have a wonderful 2005 interview with the brilliant Alicia Keys. This was a live event that we broadcast, and it was sensational. So much fun, such energy, and boy, can Alicia tell a great story. And the story she tells is both embarrassing and hilarious. And Tom, you have a brand new interview to share with us. Yeah, so the other day I talked to Ivan DeRoschuk from Men Without Hats, who believe it or not, have a new album out. It's cover versions. They cover David Bowie, they cover Lou Reed, and they even cover themselves. We'll talk more about that. And Ivan is gonna tell us two great stories. Now let's get started with Aerosmith.
2: Fast over lover, always hot.
1: From 1975, the classic Walk This Way by Aerosmith. Tom, in 1978, Aerosmith was a hit
0: band with big records, big appetites, and a private jet. They toured nonstop throughout the decade, writing hits like Dream On, which is discussed in our upcoming interview, and Sweet Emotion. At the time of this interview, it would have been difficult to see what was just ahead for Aerosmith. The departure of guitarist Joe Perry and Brad Whitford? Fading sales, and then the most unlikely comeback story featuring Run D.M.C. Right, hit albums like Pump and Get a Grip followed as well. But in this moment, all seemed well with the band, and the outsized personality of lead singer Steven Tyler is in full effect. Here, Steven Tyler talks about shooting the Sgt. Pepper
2: movie. Well, we had to get up at five o'clock for a six-thirty call, and. We did three days, one day rehearsal, two days shooting. It was great. I'm ready for the silver
3: screen. What would you like to do next? More music on the screen, or some dramatic acting, or what have you got in mind?
2: Uh, it depends on the score. People are giving me scores. Um, I don't know if I want to do a musical, uh, but some of the scripts, people have give me scores and scripts, as far as the scripts go, I'm, I'm still looking for the right thing. Sgt. Pepper was the right thing. It was future villains, which, of course, we are in real life. So
1: Little did they know at the time that the Sgt. Pepper film and even some of the soundtrack would be considered a terrible flop. However, Aerosmith did have a hit with their cover of The Beatles' Come Together, and even better was the Earth, Wind, and Fire cover of "Got to Get You Into My Life." Do you remember that version, Christopher?
0: No, I think I rejected this whole idea come out of hand completely. It just seemed like heresy to have all these artists doing these songs. I know. <laughs> I'll have to just get. I'll get over myself at some point it, along the way.
1: It was actually quite a big hit, and it sounds so good because it's Earth, Wind, and Fire totally reimagining the song Mm. but not losing the joy of the song right right it's a fantastic version wow
0: here tyler talks about how to make a classic your own
2: we did come together with george martin i listened to uh to the original Beatle track of come together excuse i'm getting the kittens out of my eyes here um i had listened to come together just to get like like the old feeling you know for the count off one, two, three keep it. and keep up and the other people in the band purposely did not listen to it so we could put Aerosmith to come together we went in we cut uh, we did three tracks George Martin was there George Martin did the Beatles all the way up to I think Sergeant Pepper
1: oh dear no Stephen <laughs> Abbey Road was the final Beatles album that George Martin produced yes we should have set the wayback machine for you to go to 1978 Tom <laughs>
0: In this next clip, Steven Tyler talks about Aerosmith traveling
2: in style. We got our own plane. We got a Convair twin engine. I mean, a four engine Convair. So we're traveling with ACDC and we're finishing out the rest of the tour in our own plane so we can throw around. We can, you know, it makes it so much more fun.
0: Here, we get to hear
2: about the listening habits of Mr. Tyler. Uh, Not too many people knew Except for ACDC, I'm hot on ACDC, because they have kick, arse, rock and roll, which you can put over the air. And it's just so good, there's not, so, there's not too many people anymore that are, that are really raw, getting out there, kicking it out. And ACDC's really good, that's why I got them on this tour with us.
1: This was obviously while Aerosmith was enjoying their first run of success, and it would change shortly thereafter. Soon, ACDC would be the headliner, and Aerosmith would be in deep trouble until their comeback, Christopher, as you said, with Walk This Way in 1986, and those comeback albums Pump and Get a Grip uh, just a few years later.
0: Okay, so now for the other members of the band. Let's, let's remember there are some people in this band aside <laughs> from Steven Tyler. Here's Brad Whitford from 1979 talking about the new album Night in the Ruts. <laughs>
1: Just yeah, t- What a terrible album title.
0: Mm, and why they chose to record the first single, Remember, Walking in the Sand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, originally done by the Shangri-Las, right? Leader of the Pack people? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: An interesting thing about that song is that Mary, the original girl that sang the lead on the Shangri-Las song,
4: uh-huh.
2: sang with Stephen, did the background vocals on the version on uh, Night in the Ruts and the single. Hmm. That piece of information also didn't get on the album. And she was 16 years old when she sang that.
1: Oh, very cool that they got Mary Weiss from the Shangri-Las to sing background on the Aerosmith cover of that song. Too bad she was uncredited. That's not right. So now let's jump ahead to 1983. We have an interview with Joe Perry, okay? I listened to the whole interview. Joe Perry's solo work wasn't particularly successful, just for a small group of people. And Joe himself is not particularly interesting in this interview. But I did find a good clip, and that is him talking about touring and what it means to him.
2: Okay. Do you like going out in the road?
4: More than I should, I think. I have too much fun out there. Yeah? Yeah. I really enjoy it. I mean, uh, you get to meet new people, have a good time, party, and you get to leave and meet a whole new set of people the next night and whatever, and it's, it's great, you know? Mm. And it's good to get out of my hometown. Where, uh, if I'm there for more than a month or so, I get into trouble. So it's good to escape Dodge, you know?
1: (laughs) Oh, you can tell that Joe Perry is one of those guys who, like Keith Richards, Absolutely lives for performing live. But boy, the relationship between Joe Perry and Steven Tyler has been fraught mm-hmm. with problems over the years, including the time, Christopher, I don't yeah. know if you heard about this, that Joe Perry hip-checked Steven Tyler off the stage during a concert in Toronto in 2010. Ouch. However, Joe and Steven are in the current lineup of the band and they have played a large number of gigs at their Vegas residency. Ah, the forgiveness of the greenback. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't there a saying that they love money more than they hate each other? It applies. Yeah. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Still more to come with Aerosmith, including Steven Tyler complaining about the burden of having a hit record and not (laughs) wanting under any circumstance to have to play Dream On one more time. Thankfully, they changed, but we'll hear that right after this. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Right now, we're in the middle of a 1978 interview with Aerosmith, and let's call this segment Rockstar Problems, which, as you'll discover in a second, are not problems at all. These clips sometimes don't age all that well, do they, Christopher?
0: There's always a little irony when we look back. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We have the perspective of time to, yeah. to open up the meaning of these uh, interview clips. And here, Stephen talks about the burden, the terrible burden of having a hit song and choosing not to play it live. In this case, we're talking about Dream On.
2: Well, because we were Dream Oned out for about four years we did that song. We decided to do Seasons of Wither instead and there's just about the same reaction from the audience as Dream On. I love it, I wrote it. It means a lot to me, that song, but so what, let's move on to something else. It just... It, it gets tiring. You know, it's hard to say that to the kids because they want to hear it. Well, what the f*** the band wants to... Uh, they get tired, you get tired of playing something over and over and over and over and over and over. And over. There's something up-tempo, rats in the cellar. <laughs> um, Draw a line or something like that. But something small, if you do it over and over, Dream On, we've been doing since we wrote it, and that's been six years now. Dream on, dream on, dream on, dream dream
1: From 1976, a classic song, Dream On, by Errol Smith, and that is the classic story of a band that gets sick and tired of playing their biggest songs, but not doing Dream On. I don't know. That doesn't seem like a great decision. <laughs> no. However, the song definitely returned to their set list, and to this day is usually the second last song of the night right before Walk This Way. Right. Now, let's go to 1978. I think this is a concert festival called, like, the Canadian Music Festival or something like that. And there were a number of people on this bill, including Steven Tyler and Ted Nugent, unfortunately. <laughs> um, right. But here's Stephen... Backstage in 1978, and this is great. This is what the broadcaster, we've heard from him before, Larry Wilson, talking to Stephen backstage. I'm
2: standing outside a trailer now, backstage at the CNE, a trailer in which Aerosmith guitar players are working out a few licks and getting the instruments tuned before they go on stage. Just a few minutes ago, I was in Aerosmith's dressing room speaking with Steve Tyler, and uh, Tyler carries a pretty heavy load doing most of the writing, the arranging, helping in the production. And indeed, uh, does he feel the pressure? So I just asked him. How do you handle all the pressure? Just take it as it comes. It's not too much pressure. Uh, you go out and tour. That's what you do. Mm. You know, you get the most pressure when you're not on the road. Well, right now, you're in the midst of uh, recording another album right yeah, here. And that's when that's when the pressure really comes down on you. Uh-huh. Because you got to do interviews. you got to get the road together. you got to get your staging together. you got to get your stage clothes together. you got to get people together, the tour managers, and all that stuff together, along with... Writing words and trying to just take a cab to the west side for me. So the road is really relaxation as much as working everything. Yeah, you could ask Ted, he'd tell you the same thing. Ted Nugent in the Aerosmith dressing room, well... Uh, Yeah, it's true.
1: Oh man, not a fan of Ted Nugent who's screaming in the background there. Did he have a
0: little cat scratch fever going on there in the background?
1: I'm sure he did, it sounded like he did. (laughs) This is Famous
0: Lost Words, heard in more than 100 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Coming up in the next few weeks, classic interviews with Crowded House, The Beatles, Keith Richards, Bonnie Rae, Taylor Swift, Loverboy, and many more. Tom, a few days ago, you had the opportunity to do a brand new interview.
1: Yeah, I talked to the guy behind this song. We can dance if we want to. We can leave your plans
0: behind. Because your friends don't dance, and if they don't dance, well,
1: are no mine. From 1982, that's the new wave classic, Men Without Hats and the Safety Dance. And I was thrilled to speak to the leader of the group, Ivan Deroshek. The new album out right now, called Again, Part 1 five songs including a brand new version of the safety dance called no friends of mine we'll hear a clip of that in just a sec also covers by tragically hip lou reed rolling stones and david bowie welcome to the show ivan hey thanks for having me all right so how does it feel to have new music come out it's great i'm excited and i'm excited for people to hear it too yeah absolutely so let's hear a clip right now of no friends of mine this is kind of a reimagined version of uh, the safety dance. Uh, So here it is right now, no friends of mine.
4: And we can dance. We can dance. Everything is out of control. We can
1: dance. We can
4: dance. They're doing it from hole
2: to
1: hole. We interviewed uh, you and another member of the band 40 years ago. Wow. And it was just before the safety dance took off. In fact, you guys were so unknown in Canada and even in Montreal that you weren't even considered a domestic act, you were considered an international act, okay? Yep. So have a listen to this.
4: They're starting to pick up on it now. We still have like a a cult status in Montreal because we haven't Mm. played in Montreal for about a year and a half. This tour is going to end up in Montreal. It's going to be the first shows in in just over a year and a half that we're going to do there. Uh, a lot of people don't know that the band's from Montreal. They mm. they think the band's from England since the it was released on Static Records, mm. and it was released in England before it came out in Canada. And the copies were selling in the stores for like fifteen dollars in the import section.
2: <laughs> and You're all like uh, and all... Chum Chum in
4: Montreal doesn't play Men Without Hats, but uh, they played Men Without Hats on the import hour. Yeah. Oh really?
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, imported from Montreal. So, what's it like to hear yourself forty years later?
4: Wow, it's it's quite interesting young voice
1: <laughs> yeah and a young voice but I would like you to put maybe put it into context of what you heard that young man there and what was yet to come in his career
4: yeah well just the fact that we even before safety dance broke yeah we were back in studio doing our second record so for us that was that was success we had made it we had hit you know the top 40 in Canada with with a couple of songs we had gotten a label to to finance our second our follow-up record we were in studio making making music we were we were on top of the world so whatever happened after that was you know it was it was the unknown to us back then you know it was stuff that we could only imagine
1: and if you could whisper to that young man in his ear as he's talking there 40 years ago what would you say to him about what's yet to come
4: oh i don't know I, i i always remember what what Arlo Guthrie said to me once. We we met on the East Coast. We were were playing at the same venue on successive nights, so we each went to see each other's show. And he came to see me, and it was right at the beginning when Safety Dance was huge. And he watched me on stage get into a beef with a security guard who wouldn't let people stand up and dance at their seats, you know. And so he saw me doing my thing, and you know, getting people to stand up. And he told me after the show, he said it was great, but he said, "Be careful." He says, "Space out your fights." Mm. Don't try and change the world. I I interpreted it as, you know, don't try and change the world all at once, you know, just yeah. take it little by little and he's still around, you know, and he's still doing his thing and and that's one of the the secrets to longevity is is knowing how to space out your
1: fights. Sure. And you know, when you think about it, this the music of Arlo Guthrie and the music of men without hats is wildly diverse, right? But the experience of being on stage and having an audience is probably exactly the same in many regards, right?
4: Yeah, it was. It was. It was funny. It was because uh, our tour buses were parked next to each other in the back of the venue, and ours was a you know brand new for those days, Silver Eagle. You know, that was the late state of the art kind of tour bus. His bus was an old Cena Cruiser uh, <laughs> Greyhound bus. That had stickers from Woodstock in it and, and, you know, like all this memorabilia. It was like a traveling museum. And we were in his, we were like all over his bus. We were like, wow, what a... And his kids were all over our bus going, whoa, whoa, video games and, you know, this and that. So That's
1: was, great. You told Christopher a few years ago when he talked to you about his uh, book about Much Music, you said that in the early 80s, you felt like you were almost in a secret club. How do you mean that? Was it because you guys were on the front line of New Wave?
4: Yeah, especially coming from Montreal too. The the the, uh, the English music scene in Montreal is relatively small. It's you know, it's about the size of Hamilton's music scene. Oh, when you count the numbers, Quebec have their own French Canadian scene. They have a whole huge star system.
1: Yeah, it's very healthy, isn't it?
4: Really, really, it's, it's amazing. It's like it's mm-hmm. like Bollywood almost over there, <laughs> and. Uh, the the english scene reminds me of the new york scene where like it's hard to find somebody from montreal in in the scene you know like it's a place that it's like a mecca the the montreal is like a mecca for musicians and Mm -hmm. and the the second reason was there was no industry in montreal there was no all the record industry was was in toronto Mm -hmm. and so there was we knew that there wasn't going to be a a record executive at the back with a big wad of cash signing us to a big deal. We we knew that wasn't going to happen, so we we were a lot freer to do whatever we wanted. We we could experiment a lot more, and so a lot of, lot lot of experimental, you know, experimental bands came from Montreal.
1: Okay, I even hold that thought because in a few minutes I'm going to ask you about a strange situation that happened in Ottawa many years ago, which led to your biggest hit. This is famous lost words. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Let's rejoin my recent discussion with Ivan Doroshek from Men Without Hats. Okay, I'm sure you've been asked every question in the world, but I'm hoping you've never been presented with this scenario, okay? So, Ivan, do you know what you and Chuck Berry have in common? (laughs) (laughs) You were both inspired to write a hit song because of something that happened in Ottawa. Okay. so chuck berry wrote sweet little 16 when he saw a young fan trying to fill up her autograph book at one of those you know late 50s concerts like you know a whole bunch of stars on one stage right yeah so that happened in ottawa and that inspired the song you know sweet little 16, da, 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 great song and the safety dance also came out of an experience at an Ottawa club. Tell us that story.
4: Well, it was the uh, dying days of disco,
1: mm-hmm. the
4: beginning of New Wave. And so every now and then the uh, the DJs in the club would slip in uh, either Blondie's Heart of Glass or B-52's Rock Lobster amongst, <laughs> amongst all the disco. So we would jump up on the floor and start to pogo dance, which pogo dance is just jumping up and down. It was kind of the precursor to slam dancing. Right. And uh, we would... Be jumping up and bouncing off each other and in the middle of the floor and the bouncers would 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 think we were getting into fights and would and kicked us out a couple of times not just once but one of those times i did go home and and wrote this song this was a direct rebuttal against that
1: that's amazing so some artists struggle with their legacy you know they get tired of playing the songs that made them famous But how do you feel about playing the safety dance and a number of other songs, including Pop Goes the World, by the way, which I think sometimes doesn't get enough respect as one of your big hits. And it was an international hit. Let's have a listen to that. Pop Goes the World by Men Without Hats. From
2: 1987,
1: that's Men Without Hats and Pop Goes the World. I'm speaking with Ivan Deroshek of Men Without Hats right now. So talk about coming to terms with your legacy and the fact that when you go out, those two songs specifically, Safety Dance and Pop Goes the World, are the ones that people always want to hear. How do you feel about that?
4: I enjoy my legacy. I love playing Safety Dance. I love the smiles that it puts on people's faces. and. I feel sometimes that the song is bigger than I am. Sometimes I feel like a traveling musician and i'm a, am working at a musician presenting this artifact to people around the world and and uh, I've got fans with their with their children and 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 grandchildren sometimes too coming to the show, so it's it's uh, it's wonderful.
1: We know a lot about um, streaming and stuff like that, and how very, very little artists make from streaming. Would you say? radio play is still the bulk of your income cuz radio stations have to pay a fee to play your songs. Mm-hmm. So would you say a radio is where you get most of your income from or or the rights of the song used in, in on TV shows or what would you say?
4: It's a combination of those two things. Mm-hmm. You know, those are those are the the bulk of it. It's licensing for TV and and commercials and movies and then radio airplay is still a big chunk of it.
1: Yeah, I think people don't really realize that. They're streaming a song, and you get, like, not even pennies. You get fractions of cents. Is that correct? We have to pay them. Oh, okay.
4: (laughs) Almost what it works out to when you count the production money that you put into it. You know, it's like, Uh, it's almost pay-to-play.
1: That's awful. Anyway, so keep that in mind, everyone. When you're thinking about whether you have a, a commercial radio station you don't pay for, you hear a few commercials, um, but those radio stations are helping to pay the artists much more than streaming services are. Keep that in mind, because this is not just a podcast, it's also a radio show. The new album out now is called Men Without Hats, again, part one. So that implies that part two is on the way. When can we expect that?
4: Early of next year. Oh, great. 12 brand new songs, 12, 12 original new Men Without Hats songs. And it's in the can. It's just waiting, just waiting to be released. So
1: Great stuff. Well, thanks a lot, Ivan. Men Without Hats. Check out the new album. And it's a lot of fun. Songs that you'll recognize, including songs by the Tragically Hip, Lou Reed, Rolling Stones, and David Bowie. And, of course, a reimagined version of a safety dance called No Friends of Mine. I just really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us here on Famous Lost Words. And I'll say hi to Christopher for you.
4: Yeah, do that. Thanks a lot.
1: This is Famous Lost Words. Let's do a little bit of time traveling. Here he- From 1960, their biggest single, Kathy's Clown, the Everly Brothers, written by Don Everly and recorded in one single take.
0: Wow. The Everly Brothers, Don and Phil, are two of the founders of rock and roll, cited by many artists, including the Beatles, as a primary influence with their sound. As Don put it, when Phil and I hit that one spot where I call the Everly Brothers, I don't know where it is because it's not me, it's not him, it's the two of us together. Mm-hmm. Listen to Simon and Garfunkel, The Hollies or The Beatles to hear the the influence of the Everlys. I can imagine them singing something like Babies in Black or Misery. Can you imagine that? Yeah. McCartney did return the favor, by the way, by writing a minor comeback hit called On the Wings of a
1: Nightingale. I remember that song really well. It was the early 80s, and it was a pretty good song. And we, I worked mm-hmm. for a real adult-oriented radio station. It got a bit of airplay with us. And I remember just going, you know what, that's really cool. And you're right about their sound. They had what's a very unusual close harmony in a way that is so unique and so identifiable as them.
0: Don was a prolific and successful songwriter who wrote Kathy's Clown, Till I Kissed You, When Will I Be Loved, and I Love This Ballad, So Sad to Watch Good Love Go Bad. Wow. All hits for the brothers. And there was no shortage of drama between these guys. He spoke of the night that he and his brother broke up on stage. He said, we had never been anywhere without working, had never known any freedom. We were just strapped together like a team of horses. That's a sad quote.
1: Wow, yeah. He goes on
0: to call it one of the saddest
1: days of my life. Mm-hmm.
0: Here, Don tells Roger Ashby the long story of their first hit, Bye Bye Love.
1: Okay, just before we get into these sound clips, I just want to apologize for the sound quality, but it is Don Everly. We did lose him recently, and we did really want to play these clips for you. So I've done my best to sweeten them up so you could hear them properly, um, and I, I hope they sound good, and please lean into the radio, or turn up those headphones, <laughs> and have a listen to these clips.
0: We called the session, we went into the studio or the rehearsal room, day or two before the recording session, and Boodlow was there, and him and Archie sang Bye Bye Love together for us, and it didn't sound really that, knocked out at all, but we decided to just go ahead and do it, and so uh, it didn't take very long to learn it, we did it, and
2: we went to the recording session with four sides, they released it, it was on the charts I think about three or four months, it hit, once they heard the record, little
3: different at the time; it stood out. Bye, bye, love.
1: Bye, bye, happiness. That's Bye, Bye Love, the Everly Brothers from 1957, and before that, that, Don Everly, Everly, Everly telling the story. And of course, we recently lost Don Everly, and uh, he will certainly be missed. And his brother Phil predeceased him a number of years earlier.
0: They returned to the songwriting couple Felice and Boudleaux Bryant for the follow-up.
2: Wake Up Little Susie uh, just seemed like the perfect thing to follow it up with. And it was banned in Boston because it had the word wake up in it. Wake up little Susie,
0: wake up little Susie, we gotta go home.
1: That's funny how a radio station banned the song because of the words wake up in Wake Up Little Susie, which of course implied (laughs) that they were sleeping together, but... To my ears, that song, I don't know. I never heard it that way. I heard it as two teens falling asleep watching a movie, and they know they got a lot of explaining to do. Such a great song. (laughs) Such a great story song. I love it.
0: Yeah. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Yet to come, a wildly entertaining chat with Alicia Keys, including one of the most embarrassing moments of her career. (laughs) Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, where we dig deep into the interview archives. Keep the good stuff and toss out the boring stuff, and we play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic.
3: This girl is on fire.
1: Girl on Fire 2012, Alicia Keys on Famous Lost
0: Words. Tom, she started writing songs at 12. She got signed to a major label at 15. She released her first album at 20 and sold 12 million records, and had a number one hit. Whew. Yeah. The song was Fallen. The artist, of course, Alicia Keys. Did we mention the five Grammys? Uh-huh. All right, well, where do you go from there? Well, in Alicia Keys' case, she has become an icon, known for her activism and humanitarian work, along with sustained success over her seven albums, which have sold over 35 million copies. And as you'll see, coming up from this chat in 2005, she is a charming interview subject, warm and self-deprecating. In this first clip, Alicia talks about what a song can mean to an
3: artist. Do you remember the journey that got you to that first single and how it felt to hear it on the radio? Oh, absolutely. I, I, how much time do I have? Yeah, 30 <laughs> seconds. Go for no, it. Okay, so basically what happened was we really... No, no, just no. kidding. Just um, kidding. Um, basically, long story short, I started writing the song for this young girl. I had this idea in my mind. There was this young girl who had this big, huge, amazing voice at the time. And, um, and I had this idea to write, write her a song that was really kind of a song you wouldn't assume like a 13-year-old would sing. And so I had this was where the idea was born. My life progressed and time went on. And I was living my life and things were a little bit up and down like how the song was talking about. And I kind of took on more on my shoulders than I probably should have at that time looking back and um hindsight 2020 yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. exactly Ah, yeah. but um i started writing this song and i was in the studio i was mixing my album uh when i was still with columbia and i started this song and it was it was falling and um obviously i, I was no longer with columbia after a while we had a, a parting of ways and um Fallen was like this song that every time I played it for anyone, I would get these chills because it really represented this time in my life that I really felt strongly about. And the first time that I heard it on the radio, I was in my kitchen and I was cleaning, it was Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and I had on the radio, it was a station called 7.5, and it kind of plays all like the just you know, this guy named Hal Jackson has been on the radio forever. And um, I'm cleaning the house together Sunday, and I hear the and I was just frozen, and I start screaming. No one else was in the house, by the way. You know what I'm saying? I'm screaming like, "Oh my God, oh my God!" And I'm turning up the radio as loud as I can possibly go. I was like, "It sounds so good on the radio." <laughs> <laughs> So, I was totally just enamored. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe I was hearing it. I couldn't believe from the journey that I had taken, which obviously would take much longer than 30 seconds to tell. I just it was such an, it was such a, an arrival for me, just for me personally, at that moment in my kitchen on Sunday. And what a exactly. great story. <laughs> and you know what? we get chills when we hear it too. Thank you.
1: That's Fallen from the spring of 2001, Alicia Keys. And you know, every single artist remembers hearing their songs on the radio for the first time. By the way, I just want to give a shout out to the interviewer. Her name is Mae Potts. We've heard from Mae before, including that absolutely phenomenal interview with George Michael that we had in season four. So. Just a shout-out to May, who's still going. Uh, she's a, a terrific broadcaster, and I wanted to give her some acknowledgement. And I was at this interview. This was in front of a very large audience, and it was just great. The, the energy in the room was great. And Alicia performed. She performed a number of songs. And you want an artist that has every single skill that you could hope for as a vocalist, as a writer, and as a, as a musician, but also as a band leader. Man, she had that band tight. And yeah. and they followed her. And she, like, one of those people that you know is totally in charge. And she reminds me of Stevie Wonder in that way. person, mm. like, on the keyboard with just a nod of their head, and the band is watching her. You know what I mean? And just like Stevie. Yeah.
0: Well, and that energy that you referred to in the room, um, it comes through on this playback. And I don't know how many years later. Almost, is this almost 20 years later, this interview? This is, uh, what, 16 years ago. Wonderful interview. Every artist... Has some road stories, Tom.
3: We have a question right now from Amber. Hi, Amber. Hi, Alicia. Hi. I just want to say you're so beautiful and you're so talented. You So many of my friends wanted to be here with you, but they couldn't. Oh, tell them I said what's up. I hope they're listening. And uh, I just wanted to ask
1: you, what's the funniest moment you've ever had on tour?
3: Oh, boy. (laughs) Here goes my funniest moment I ever had on tour story. (laughs) Yeah, the band's looking nervous. (laughs) This, some of, y- some of y'all is with me on this one, so I'm gonna have to go ahead and tell this one. So, we're in D.C. And this is the beginning. <laughs> and it's the beginning of my whole diary album. And so we're, what we do is we, we decide to do a really small, intimate event for radio and journalists and mm, people who are gonna talk bad about me in the news. <laughs> So, it's, everything's great, it's beautiful. We have this gorgeous ice sculpture of the album cup. I mean, it's gorgeous. Everything is perfect, it's amazing. I'm sitting at the piano, everything's cool. And there was this monitor right here. A monitor is like, you know, these black things, This like this right here? These black things that are in front, it helps me hear. This is a monitor in front of me. So, I'm sitting, I'm playing, it's very stripped down. It's me on the piano, backgrounds, probably like bass. I don't know, it wasn't much of anybody. We were real stripped down. and. um so there are these people in the back, and they're kind of talking while I'm playing. So I was kind of like, hey, cracked a joke or two and kept playing, and they're still talking. So I was like... <laughs> so I kept playing, and they're still talking. So I decided, okay, I'm going to make this into kind of like a funny joke. I'm going to go over to these people and tell them about themselves. So I get up with all this vigor to go over there and tell them. And as I'm walking, I forget that the thing is right there. And when I tell you that, I took a spill. You've never seen a spill like I've never seen a spill. Oh, my mic was in my hand. And as I'm falling, I'm like, I can't believe this. I can't believe that I'm falling right now. And so I hit the floor, boom, and the mic hits. And it sounded like I lost all my teeth. I mean, it sounded bad. It was bad. The whole crowd was like, oh, This is a real story. You don't understand the torment that I was feeling. And so journalists, radio, mind you. So I'm falling and I'm in, and as I'm, as I hit the ground, I'm like, all right. So I get up and I was like, I keep on falling. Because I knew, I knew that if I didn't do it, somebody was gonna do it. So I said, let me be the one that does it first and then we can move on. I had to finish the show. I blamed those people. I was like, this is all your fault. I had to sit down and finish the show. I was so more embarrassed than I've ever been in my life really, really was. Some people thought it was part of the act, like yeah. I did it on purpose. I walked out of there and my y'all were cracking up. They were laughing at me so bad. It was really embarrassing. I don't think anybody wrote about it, though, thank goodness. And so, did they that's at least stop talking? Yes. Yes. Okay, mission accomplished. They definitely stopped talking.
1: Is there anything she can't do? She's a great singer and songwriter, a wickedly talented musician, and she's even an amazing storyteller.
0: You know, even stars have heroes. Now, who do you think Alicia Keys' hero would be?
3: We had the honor and privilege and pleasure of working with Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. And it was one of the most incredible things ever because, let me just give you a little backstory. Uh, it was also Lenny Kravitz, who was a pretty cute guy, if you ask me. <laughs> You know what I mean, right? Yeah. So, it was Lenny Kravitz and it was Stevie Wonder. And Lenny came first, and he came in, and and all the ladies was like, "Oh, hey, Lenny, yeah, hey." <laughs> and um, right? So we're cool. Lenny's cool. We're just playing and getting the song together and everything. And so finally, they come in and say, "Okay, Mr. Wonder is here, and he's coming in." And so I'm like, "Okay, great. Is everything cool?" I look back to my background. Was, They're gone. My ladies are gone. <laughs> I was like, well, "Where's my ladies? Where, where are they? What?" came back hair was done (laughs) lipstick was on makeup was done they were standing special i was like what what are y'all doing it's like no stevie he's gonna feel if i'm not together (laughs) so so it was really exciting to work with him and he just you know he comes in and he sits down and he goes through the keyboard i mean and it's just Amazing. I mean, I just st- stood over him in awe, and it was such an, an, a privilege to be able to be with him in the flesh like that, and for for us to sing um, his song and my song, and he played harmonica and I find "Got You," and it was just unreal. So he's one that had me borderline. I yeah. was almost fainting. <laughs> well, you know, the thrill that you're talking about with Stevie, I'm sure everyone in this room has had it with you and your band tonight. <laughs> Thank you. It's been great. you
1: That's Alicia Keys with Jay-Z from 2009. What a big hit. Empire State of Mind great song and a great performance.
0: Great stuff, Tom. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Our show was co-written by myself, Christopher Ward, and my co-host, Tom Jokic, executive producer, Sarah Cummings. We're heard in more than 100 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. Check us out on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.